I want it all to make sense. Solomon's Search for Meaning. This is our last Sunday in the book of Ecclesiastes. I can't tell you how exciting this book has been uh, to preach every Sunday. There have been surprises every step of the way, and yet somehow Solomon keeps coming back to truths that are still relevant uh, thousands of years later. This book was written, Solomon lived 1,000 B.C., and the series has been called, um, I Want It All to Make Sense, Solomon's Search for Meaning. And this today is called Prepare for Eternity, Part 2, The Finale. So for the last time, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Next Sunday is going to be spectacular. Uh, we are going to have Vision Sunday as a church. I'm going to preach on our mission as a church, and it's going to be uh, a lead-in to uh, about a six-week series on Anchor Church DNA. There's a lot of people who are wanting to find a church to call home, and there are a lot of people who are re-engaging with church and wanting to say, what's the future? How can we build and rebuild the church to be stronger than ever? A lot has changed over the last two years. We've got to get back to the fundamentals of church and become the healthy, strong, vibrant church God wants us to be. So that's going to be, that'll kick off next week. There are a lot of people who join us online, over 100 people every week. Many of them are wondering, all right, are we ready for our first visit uh, to this church in person? And I would say this, next Sunday is the perfect Sunday to start coming or to come back after a long time away. You will step off with us on the right foot as we figure out, all right, what does church look like in this new era? But here we are finishing up uh, Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. And as we get into this book, let me introduce you to a man named Mr. Eternity. I don't know if you've had a nickname in life, but this guy's nickname is Mr. Eternity. Here's a picture of him. We'll put it up on the screen. Mr. Eternity, in November of 1932 in Australia, was a down-on-his-luck World War I veteran named Arthur Stace. He was homeless and hopelessly addicted to alcohol. His life of gambling and petty crime had only worsened his poverty and driven him to suicidal depression. Having failed at everything he could think of to, to um, the aching cavity in his soul and try and fill it up, he stumbled one Sunday night into a church. In God's providence, preaching that evening was a man named John Ridley who spoke on the subject of eternity. You're on your way somewhere, brother, and God made you to long for the place you're headed for. He eloquently described the settled destination of every human being with the word eternity, repeating it again and again, eternity, eternity, eternity. Those eight letters captured Stace's mind and demanded from his life a major course correction. As Ridley proclaimed the truth of every person's march toward eternity and the only gospel that prepares a soul for that inevitability, the God of the universe invaded Stace's soul. Conquered by the message of salvation and Christ's provision for his own eternity, Stace dedicated the rest of his life to doing what he could to help people find the God who had found him. Every day for more than 35 years, Stace rose before the sun and after a cup of tea, few minutes of Bible reading, he'd go to the streets of Sydney with a piece of chalk, and he would write the word eternity. Eternity, eternity. Over and over, thousands of times, he wrote in the same beautiful script. Everywhere, it mysteriously appeared all around town. Somehow, instead of being insulted by the overtly spiritual message, people reported feeling strangely encouraged. Eternity, 
It wasn't until 1956 that people found out who was writing this word all over their town. Stace died in 1967 at the age of 83, and they estimate that he had written the word eternity all around Sydney 500,000 times. Mystery eternity. The word eternity is a word that Solomon wrote over all of humanity in this book of Ecclesiastes, 1000 B.C. You see, he went on a search. He looked high and low. He looked everywhere on earth to find something to make his soul happy. And guess what? He found nothing on earth. Nothing. He was a trillionaire. He had, all, he had palaces. He had women. He had food. He had power. He had fame. He had everything. And he had nothing. He was miserable. And so the word eternity came into this book. And he again and again came back to the reality that heaven must fill earth with joy or you won't find it anywhere else. Today we'll see that the conclusion of this book challenges us to prepare for eternity. That's been the culminating theme throughout the book, and that is the climactic theme for us today. If you look at chapter 12, verse 9, there is an epilogue to this book. The epilogue is written by the person who compiled this book or preserved it after Solomon's life. It's a different voice that came into the beginning of the book and now is here at the end. And it says this, besides being wise, the preacher, that's Solomon, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the end, preparing for the culmination of your life. Are you preparing for eternity? Or are you chasing the wind on earth? Is your search pointing you up? and causing you to long for more than this world could ever offer you? Uh, or are you simply settling for the best that earth has to offer? Well, what does it mean to actually prepare for eternity? That's what we're going to find out together. Let's pray, and then we'll learn how to prepare for eternity. Father, we pray that you would, in this final passage of this book, open our eyes to see the reason we were born. Open our eyes to show us why you made us and how we can walk through this life with our eyes on heaven. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the uh, first thing you can write down in your notes, if you're taking notes, is this. Be wise, not foolish. Be wise, not foolish. This entire book is part of what's called wisdom literature. And the Bible is not just full of history. It's not just full of theory or theology. This is called wisdom literature. And it's in the Bible to show us that in order to get ready for eternity, we have to know and understand the very wisdom of God. It's, it's essential to receive 
knowledge from heaven if we are going to get there one day. And wisdom is a form of knowledge from heaven. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. This shows us how our Bible was composed. It was very careful, not careless. And the preacher, Solomon, we know received his wisdom directly from God. God literally appeared to Solomon several times throughout his life. And Solomon asked for wisdom and God gave it to him. So this is a divine source of wisdom. And then there was a great care in studying and arranging many, many proverbs. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Words of delight, words of truth. Then there's some comparisons to what these words are like, but the bottom line is this. We have to be wise, not foolish. Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs to commend to us a life of wisdom. Therefore, you have a fork in the road, and so do I. I've got a picture of a literal fork in the road here. Check it out. I think this is in California somewhere. They put a fork in the road. (laughs) This is what wisdom does. You have a choice to make. Will you go God's way or will you go your own way? Uh, There's a choice to make. There's a fork in the road. And if we walk wisely, our lives will take us down the path to eternity. If we walk foolishly, uh, then we will walk away from God. Jesus called these the, the narrow way, that leads to life, and the wide road that leads to destruction. Which road are you on? We have to be wise, not foolish, and that means we keep his commandments. It says here that we have to, in verse 13, which is the the whole uh, center here, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So keeping his commandments is what it means to be wise. How are you doing at arriving at the same conclusion this book is leading us to, that you know what, if I'm going to get ready here for there, I'm going to keep God's commandments. I'm going to live by the book. I'm going to make sure that I align my life with the wisdom that is found in Scripture. Am I going to be wise or am I going to be foolish? Jot this down. We're invited to delight in the truths of God, to delight in the truths of God. It says here, he found words of delight, words of delight. There are many proverbs about just how good the Word of God is. And I wonder if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, good, good, this book is a straitjacket. It's going to take all of my fun away. If I follow this book, people are going to think that I'm stuck in the dark ages. Maybe you strongly disagree with this and you don't like this book. You don't like the commandments of God. In fact, you're trying to like, have fun by getting around them. And um, I would say this, if, if you will give it a chance, the Bible actually invites you to taste and see that it's good. The Bible is open to you giving it that challenge. In fact, it says, bring it on. Bring it on. Delight in the truths of God. God's word is actually given for our good. If you have a child in a sport, our kids played baseball and softball, uh, do the rules ruin the game? Well, it depends. I mean, like, if it's a foul ball and it would have scored us the winning run, then that rule is kind of a pain. You know what I mean? But let's face it. The rules actually protect the game. Am I right? If you eliminate all the rules, 
you will have chaos. When a rule is broken, you have anarchy in the stands because the rule was broken. Life's the same. The rules protect the game. God's rules protect your life. And so we should delight in them. This is the area of theology about the Bible, and uh, we believe Scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos. It came from the very lips of God through human authors. So while man was writing, God was speaking. Solomon was sharing wisdom from God. This genre is delightful. It's different from just Scripture. It's different from just uh, a list of genealogies. Those are precious too, but, but Proverbs and Psalms and uh, written by David, and also this book. It's beautiful. It's touching. It, it warms your heart. It challenges your, your life. That's why it's referred to as a bit of a treasure hunt. Here's a picture of treasure. And we learn that God's Word, one attribute of God's Word is it is valuable. It's immensely valuable. It's actually more valuable than all the wealth in the world. If Jeff Bezos came to you tomorrow and said, I'm going to give you my fortune, or I'm going to give you the last Bible on earth, pick the Bible. It's of more value than everything you could ever hold in your hands. Do you delight in the truths of God? Proverbs 2, 4 to 5, we'll put it up on the screen. It says this, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If we said that one lucky mom today is going to walk away with a gold bar, we hid it somewhere in the building, and uh, she's free to go find it right now, we wouldn't have any moms left in the room. Because <laughs> there's something of value out there. God's Word is a mountain of gold. As you read it each week, you're mining precious truths. It's, it's precious, it's valuable, it's heavenly, yet to so many people, it's worthless it's worthless. It means nothing. It's of no value. Psalm 19, 10 to 11 says this, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. Now we're using food. What is God's word like? It's sweet to the taste. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. God's word protects you, it delights you, it satisfies you, it enriches you. Do you delight in the truths of God? Hey, are you learning to trust God as you make sense of his will? Are you, are you in the word each week and are you in the word each day? Are you allowing God to speak to you? Are you listening? And are you delighting in it because he's filling your heart with the very wisdom of heaven? The preacher taught the people knowledge. There was learning. There was weighing, studying, arranging. He loved God's word. Uh, he loved in the world finding God's ways and capturing it in a way that revealed God's will. The preachers found words of delight to share with us. And therefore, we can know God's word, his will, and we can keep his commandments. Do you delight in the truths of God? Let's face it. Life seems so unpredictable right now. Your visibility of the future, maybe many years ago you had a clear windshield and you could see many miles ahead. Now it's like there's a downpour in a fog, in an eclipse, and you can't see anything coming. You don't know very far out what's on its way. Now that should actually make you 
rely on God's word more, not less. When you're shaken, this should be your refuge. You should say, we are not getting off the trail because we can't predict the future, but we know that this is one reason why God gave us this word. We're going to delight in the truths of God. Taste and see that God's word is good. Be wise, not foolish. Delight in the truths of God. These are, these are words of delight. Now, there's also some comparisons here. It talks about goads. It talks about nails. This is, this is a way that God shows us what his word is like. So let's look at those comparisons. Jot this down. They're like goads to guide and protect you. Be wise, not foolish. They're like goads to guide and protect you. Now, you might be thinking, what's a goad? I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what a goad is. Uh, it's basically a cattle prod. Okay, so you're out there farming, and you got, you got the cattle, you know, you're, you're farming, 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 and the animal decides it doesn't want to stay on track. So you have this long stick with a point on it, and it starts going the wrong way, and you're just like, poke, and then it gets back on the right way because it doesn't like the poke, right? If you've ever been to family camp, Silver Birch Ranch, they've got a stable up. How many of you have been to family camp before, uh, Silver Birch Ranch? So Lauren one year rode a horse named Jezebel, and there's a reason why they named the horse Jezebel, okay? So you're just out there on the trail, and they tell you if, you know, if the horse reaches down to have a little snack, you've got to tell it who's boss. You've got to give it a kick and give it a pull because they're testing you, right? Well, Lauren didn't want to, you know, upset the horse, and she's like, have a little snack. Well, then Jezebel decided she wanted a full meal, so she turned and walked straight into the forest. Like, Lauren was ducking and dodging tree limbs because there was a sweet weed out there that Jezebel apparently had to have. Now there's no hope getting Jezebel back on the trail. So they had to, like, get off the horses and somehow find a way to prod Jezebel back on the trail. Now, God's Word does that. When we are getting off the trail, when we are going the wrong way, God's Word comes along like a goad, and we remember, we remember, poke, ah, ouch, ouch. I got to get back on the right path here. It could be a friend telling you, hey, you're getting off track here. Ouch. It could be you in your devotion time and something, you see it and you're like, uh-oh, this is exactly what I needed to hear today because I was going to go left, but God's word is telling me to go right. It could be an entire pattern in your life and you weren't quite aware that you were outside of God's will and then suddenly you learn what God's word has to say about that area of your life and it's like, wow, ow, ooh, that's why this has been so hard for me. It's like a goad getting us back on the trail, getting us back on the path. God's word, it's like a goad to guide us and remember, that protects us. Because if we keep getting far off the trail, it's a treacherous trail. And we will hurt ourselves and we won't bear fruit. There are many other images that God's Word is like. I picked a few of them here. We'll put these up on the screen. God's Word is like a sword. It cuts into us and it divides us and it reveals our heart, penetrates deep within. That's conviction. It's like a light. It, it guides our path when we feel like we can't see where we're going or we're afraid we're all alone. It's like a hammer that breaks thing to, things to pieces, like entire systems, entire governments, entire worldviews can be demolished by God's truth, strongholds in our lives. And then it's like a fire. It consumes what is worthless in this world. God's word is like those things, and it's also like a cattle prod. <laughs> Ow! And that is God's way of loving you. 
Maybe God is guiding you with his word right now and it's somewhat uncomfortable. I don't know where you're at in life, but emotionally we can get off track. We can get really off track emotionally. We can either get super down or super angry. Uh, we can get super excited about all the wrong things, but emotionally we can get off the path and God's word might come along and be like, ow, to get us back on the track. And that's not God hurting us, that's God helping us. Verbally, the words that we use, we can become very foolish and reckless with the words we use. In fact, uh, even, even one thing we say to someone can, can sting them for years. And if we're getting off track with what we're saying, God's word can come along and remind us that the tongue has the power of life and death. Ouch! And it can move us back on the right path here. Financially, we can get off the trail. We can get afraid. We can struggle to be generous. Uh, we can circle the wagons and forget that there are people out there in need because we're afraid. Or maybe we don't know what's coming in our future financially, and that can be an, an ever-present source of, of fear and worry and anxiety and stress. And God's Word comes along and reminds us that He will provide for us so we can honor Him. Spiritually, we can get off track. We can go to bad places where we're believing terrible things about God or his people. And relationally, we're, we're in a bad place. And God's word is like, is like a goad. It's, it's guiding us. And as we get off, what, what father doesn't discipline his children, right? God disciplines those he loves. You're getting off track. You're getting off track. And then, boom, his word just gives you that poke. And now he's moving you back to where you need to be. We have to walk in alignment with God's word, or we're going to endure so much needless suffering. Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, life is hard enough to begin with, and folly will make it a hundred times harder. In Ecclesiastes 2.14, it says, the fool walks in darkness. 10.12, the lips of a fool consume him. 10.15, toil wearies him, won't work. 719, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Prepare for eternity. How? Be wise, not foolish. God's word is like goads to guide you and protect you. And I know it's easy to behave in line with God's word, but when you're struggling to trust him, it gets hard. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you feel... Like, it's hard to trust God. Maybe not. Maybe you're actually doing pretty well. And, and it's easy to believe in God when you feel upbeat and lively and optimistic. But it gets a lot harder when you're panicked, stressed, even petrified. It's easy to behave in line with God's word when you're content, chill, tranquil, school's out, no more homework. It's easy to kind of stay on track then. It's harder when you're disheartened, exhausted, or even afraid. I don't know where you're at, whether you're at the top or at the bottom, but God's word is like a goad, like goads to guide you and protect you. Delight in the truths of God. They're like goads to guide and protect you. And jot this down, they're like nails to build and secure you. So it says the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. They're like nails to build and secure you. Nails firmly fastened, you know, pounded deeply into the wood that will hold something together. They'll hold you up. You can trust them. You can build with them. Last year, Lauren and I bought a fixer-upper. 
in uh, Crestwood. And check it out. Here's a picture of me renovating our bathroom. There's me. Bathroom selfies are a thing, right? So I took a bathroom selfie. <laughs> and that's what we were trying to rip out the old shower and put in a new this and that. And I tell you what, some of the nails were rusted and some of them, had, were, they were loose and they just came out right away. You know, out. They didn't hold anything. Some of them were stubborn big nails that had been in there for a while, and they weren't budging. I had to get out the power tools to get those nails out. We know what it's like to have a nail holding something up. Um, So the words of God are like nails to build and secure you. You can rely on them. Do you see these images were being given of God's word? They're like a delight. Uh, They're like goads. They're like nails. These images help us to rely on them and to value them. Maybe you feel like you have relied on unreliable people who, who have fallen through and hurt you, right? But listen, God won't do that. He's reliable. Maybe you've relied on principles in your life or a way of doing things that has fallen through and hurt you. But listen, God's word is not like that. It's like nails firmly fastened. You can build your life on them. So number one, be wise, not foolish, Delight in the truths of God. They're like goads to guide and protect you. They're like nails to build and secure you. It goes on to say this. Given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there's no end, and much study is weariness uh, of the flesh. The warning there is that wisdom is not the way to God. Careful, careful. Some people read that and they're like, all right, I'm all in. I'm going to learn everything I can in the entire world and win Jeopardy and memorize the whole Bible. Whoa, 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 whoa. The point is not the, the wisdom. It's God who gives the wisdom. You can miss the God who gives it. Wisdom is uh, not the way to God. God is the one who gave the wisdom, right, so that you can know him. Careful there. That's a warning. Beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there's no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. This is not meant to be a dull, joyless effort at trying to understand all these facts. It's all about joyfully knowing God who gives the wisdom. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God. Fear God. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. So jot this down. Number two, be godly not godless. Be wise, not foolish. Be godly, not godless. It's only a two-point message. Be godly, not godless. How is your relationship with God right now? Do you fear him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? There's a warning here that if your whole life God has just been a bunch of book knowledge, you miss the point. The learning is endless. It's not about the book knowledge. If you've been learning the rules all your life, do this, don't do that, you're missing it. It's about God. It's about God. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about God and how we can fear him. That basically means in this book, understanding that he's in control of everything. All of the seasons of life. It's called his providence. Here's a picture of the seasons that we keep bringing up. And you're in a season of life and faith right now. Maybe it's summer and everything's going well and God is good. Or maybe it's fall and things are getting colder and dying and you're scared. Maybe it's winter and you are frozen solid. You're in a bad place. Or maybe it's spring and God's turning things around. Do you fear God? And are you experiencing his presence no matter what you're going through in life? 
Jot this down. You were created to know him. This is what led into this entire passage, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. You were created to know him. Fear God. You were created to know him. Do you ever ask the question, how did we all get here? Where did everything come from? Uh, Why is there something here rather than nothing? And uh, why am I here? Do you ever ask that question, where did everything come from? And why are we here? Sometimes people stay up late at night wondering why they do what they do. The next load of laundry, the next clock in and clock out, pay that next bill and go to the store and, you know, and buy the part to fix the toilet. And then at the end of your day, you're laying in your bed and you're like, why am I doing this? Why are we going through all the motions here? Does it mean anything? Does it matter? Does it count in the end? Or is it just in the end, lights out? You were created by an awesome God. That gives your life purpose. That gives your life meaning. That that gives you value no matter where you're at. Ecclesiastes would call that your lot. It's not random. God has placed you here for this time for a purpose to know him and love him and serve him and honor him. You are a created being. You have a creator. So the whole duty of man here is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's why there's breath in your lungs today. We call that to glorify God. Glorify means to become evidence, proof that God has been somewhere and he's done something. That's what it means to glorify God. We are all here to glorify God to give proof to the world that he's been here and that he's done something. That's why we were born. Remember your creator. Now, we also have earthly creators, right? We've got moms, and we are honoring them today. We were brought into this world uh, through great labor pains. We didn't just make ourselves, right? We didn't self-assemble. We didn't somehow in spirit form go on Amazon and order a body, and then put it together and jump in, you know, and then, ha ha, I'm here. We were made spiritually and physically. We all have a youth, right? And I've got a picture here when I was young. My mom had two kids, me and my sister, and there we are. Ha! There's me and my sister when we were young, and we're grateful because our mom brought us into this world. And that's what Mother's Day is all about. It's humbling to realize you are a created being, and the next time you're, you're really afraid of life or you're thinking you're really something special, look in the mirror and say to yourself, I was once the size of a poppy seed. Do you know how big a poppy seed is? It's like on a hot dog bun, all right? You were that, and God brought you into this world. Because of that, you were created, and you were created to know him. God knit you together in your mother's womb. You are therefore here for a divine purpose. You can rest in the reality that you didn't make yourself. You were designed and built by a holy God for a heavenly purpose. And you can rest in the reality that you didn't make your children alone. God brought them into this world for his holy and heavenly purpose. And unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Praise God that we are all part of this heavenly purpose on earth and in fact we can't find meaning and security and satisfaction anywhere on earth without god we can rest in that we were created 
to know him. Are you embracing that reality? Fear God. It means to know about him, to know he is, and to orient yourself rightly toward him. And one of his attributes is he's the creator. This should really blow your mind. He's not just the creator of you and of everyone around you. He's the creator of every single thing in the whole wide universe. He made it all. He made it all with his word. And therefore, we should revere him and we should worship him. You were created to know him. Hey, be godly. Be godly, not godless, because you were created to know him. Jot this down. And know that he sent Jesus to be your good shepherd. We're going to now camp on this word in verse 11 where it says they are given by one shepherd. And I want to take that word in its original context and then zoom the camera out. Um, Some commentators, to give you a, a background of how I studied this passage, some commentators see this editorial note at the end as somewhat correcting what Solomon was saying. Like, he didn't quite get to the end, so we're going to spell it out for you and kind of fix what he said, even warn you a little bit. I don't agree with that. I think that these verses here at the end actually commemorate the conclusions that Solomon kept coming back to throughout the book. He, He explored But he kept coming back to these base camp realities, like that there is a creator, that there is a judgment, right? So I do believe that this idea of there being one shepherd does does point to the reality that there is one source of wisdom. And in the Old Testament, uh, God was referred to as a shepherd. And so It could just mean in this context that the shepherd is the wisdom or the wisdom givers, but I think that you could very easily bridge that to the reality that God is the one who gives all wisdom. Proverbs is clear about that. All wisdom comes from one God. And um, we know that when it comes to the wisdom of God, Solomon's own, you know, father wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever." God was shepherd to Israel in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus showed up and he said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know me. They know my voice. I will lead them. Do you have God as your shepherd? And are you trusting him to lead and guide you through this whole life? And in addition, have you realized that the greatest way that he's going to care for you is he sent his son into the world to take care of you every day of this world and then forever to lead you into eternity through the valley of the shadow of death. He sent Jesus to be your good shepherd. This is what God is to you. It's it's glorious to think of God as our shepherd, and it's really insulting to think of ourselves as sheep. Am I right? You're just a sheep. (laughs) I've got a video here of a sheep that got into some trouble. Check it out. Finally free, and <laughs> I'm off. No 
Nope. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Why do we need a shepherd? Because that's what we do. Hey, we can't make it through this life alone. We need his word. We need his spirit. We need his son. We need his church around us. We can't go it alone. And maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel like you're afraid God's not with you. You don't know where your life is going. You can't predict the future. That's why you need a shepherd. You can't know what's going to happen with your job. You don't know how people are going to treat you. You don't know how your kids are going to turn out. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know what's in the future. But Jesus will shepherd you and he will guide you. And goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Then you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever if you follow that shepherd. Are you following Jesus as your good shepherd? Jot this down. Christ alone can prepare you for eternity. Be godly, not godless. You were created to know him. He sent Jesus to be your good shepherd. And, and judgment comes up in verse 14. Christ alone can prepare you for judgment. It says in verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now this is terrifying. Every single thing I've ever done or said or thought is going to be brought up in the judgment day. That's like a moment where you go, oh, am I right? Am I right? Like, what? Worst day of your life. Everything comes out. How can we have hope? Well, here's the thing. If we fear God and keep his commandments and fulfill the whole duty of man and realize there's one shepherd and, and we're letting the truth of God delight us, it will lead us to glory. In the Old Testament, they couldn't quite figure out how that would work. They did the math, basically, but they didn't quite know. Job knew, right? I will, you know, with my own eyes, I'll see him. My Redeemer lives and he will dwell near, but he didn't know how. He didn't know exactly how. We do. We do because Jesus came. And if you want to prepare for eternity, you have to prepare for judgment. If you think you're just going to die, go on to the next life, and like the cartoons, your spirit comes out of your body, and you've got a little halo over your head, and you just walk into the cloud city and get your toga, and, and everything's gold, and you're happy, you skipped the judgment. And we will all appear before God to give an account for the deeds done in the body. Not just the things we've done and said and thought, but the things we left undone that we were supposed to do. You're supposed to hear that and think to yourself, I'm doomed. If you think you're going to do okay with what's written in your book and maybe God will grade on the scale and my book's not as bad as other people's books, you don't understand judgment. See, in order to get into heaven, there's no sin allowed in heaven, not even one. Can you imagine if you got to heaven the first day you're there, somebody stole your iPhone? Heaven with sin in heaven. No sin can be there. Therefore, you have to be sin-free. Well, how can that happen? That's why God sent Jesus to die on the cross and to take away all of our sins so that we can be without sin because he paid the price. Even better, Jesus lived the perfect life. He deposits his righteousness into our soul so it's like we're perfect. Here's an easy way to think of it for those college students who are back. You ready? He took your F, you took his A. Your F, he erased your name and wrote his name. He took your F. He got an A, he erased his name and put your name at the top, turned it in. You now are fit 
for heaven. It's your only hope of getting into judgment, getting through judgment. Someone else has to give you their credit. Jesus alone is qualified to do that. Jesus alone can prepare you for judgment. Hey, are you living with eternity in mind? How do you know if you're ready to stand before a holy God to give an account for your life? Well, we know that Solomon and the Old Testament knew you had to follow the commandments of God and fear him. They didn't know that Jesus would come down and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the Word who became flesh, the full wisdom of God. Therefore, we have to follow him, the one shepherd, through whom everything came. Now it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense. And then you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear in judgment. Ecclesiastes 3, 11 to 12, we'll put it up on the screen, says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Be joyful, do good as long as they live with eternity in your heart. But here's the thing, we couldn't figure out what God has done, but now we know. Now we know that Jesus came down to reveal to us how all of this comes together. Maybe today the word eternity is exploding in your heart. Maybe today, just like Arthur Stace, the word eternity is, is flashing before your eyes. Maybe it's because you are ready and you're filled, full of joy because you know where you're going. Maybe it's because you're not ready and you're afraid that you have to get ready and get right with God. Arthur Stace, who had nothing going for him, homeless and helpless, found Christ and wrote the word eternity 500,000 times all over Sydney, Australia to get people ready for what's coming. Solomon did the same thing. Eternity, eternity, eternity is coming. Are you ready for eternity? You will find nothing on earth that will satisfy your soul forever. Forever is coming. And only Christ can get you ready for eternity. After he passed away at 83 years old, he left such an impact in his city that they called him Mr. Eternity. And then when the Olympics came along, the turn of a new millennium, the year 2000, Sydney had to plan a great ceremony to kick off the Olympics. Leading into that year, they decided that the word eternity would be the central word for their entire city going forward. A powerful word that penetrated deeply into the soul of every human being. And so in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Sydney, check out what they did to honor Arthur Stace. They flashed the word eternity in his handwriting for hundreds of millions of people to see. We've got a picture of that. Here's what it looked like. Eternity. They flashed it in front of everyone to see. And then they even put it on the bridge over the city. Check out this next picture. Eternity, eternity, eternity. Are you ready for eternity? Let's pray. What a word. What a word that Solomon flashed in front of our eyes a thousand BC. What a word Arthur Stace 
500,000 times wrote everywhere, all around his city to get people to think of what's next, what's bigger, what's higher, what's better, what's more. It's not here on earth. And Jesus, I thank you that you came down from heaven to prepare us for eternity. Because you live, we can face tomorrow. We can face forever because you live. And there are some here today who needed to be reminded that earth is just earth. It's broken. It's hard. We'll be shattered. We'll be exhausted and empty and worn out. We'll be chasing the wind. That's all earth will ever be. But there is eternity. There's paradise. Your presence. And we can live here fixing our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And therefore, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Praise you for those of us who know that, who are living with hope through life's hardest trials, who are walking by faith through life's darkest valleys. Praise you that if we fear you, keep your commandments, we can find joy in this life. But that joy comes because we know where we're heading. We're, we're strangers and aliens here. We're just passing through. This life is a tent that will soon be folded up. This universe will be rolled up like a scroll, like a blanket. The stars will vanish. But praise you that you are going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And we have a place there in Christ. Lord, some came here today and they, they don't have a personal relationship with you, Jesus. You're not their shepherd. Maybe they knew some things about you, but they, they have not had a saving faith in you. They've not been born again. They have not come under your total shepherding authority. And I want to give them a chance right now to surrender their lives to you, to find their way to eternity to know that they're ready. Maybe some had a false sense of assurance. They thought because they were doing good or avoiding bad, that's all you wanted. No. We have to be saved. We have to have a shepherd to take us and guide us to eternity. Maybe some people are here today and they feel lost. They feel hopeless. They feel like you would never accept someone like them. And they have a false sense of despair. I pray that you would meet them with your mercy and show them, Jesus, that you call the vilest offender who truly believes to come and be part of his flock, of your flock. Help them to know that they are welcome in your presence, not only here, but forever. Their life can serve your purpose. Right now, may they pray in their heart, Jesus, be my shepherd. Jesus, be my savior. God, I fear you. Teach me to keep your commandments. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we resolve there's no turning back. We've decided to follow you through this life forever. You're the only one who can shepherd us to the end and beyond that day, through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.